Tetrahedra, a math and science podcast providing a brief yet comprehensive presentation into a wide variety of STEM topics and DIY project ideas and challenges. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tetrahedra. I'm going to try to go uh, back on script today um, because I've got an awesome episode for you about some very futuristic materials. Okay, just quick disclaimer. I claimed I was going back on script. That's because um, I wrote this back when I was still doing the ASMR content and figuring out exactly what the pod was going to be. Um, yes, I'm going off script now because I'm explaining this to you because I'm not actually going back on script if I was on script the whole time. Anyway, anyway, um, so yes, some very futuristic materials, very state-of-the-art materials tonight. So one of the things that I noticed listening to prior episodes, um, mainly the, the ASMR portion that I used to do, is that I can always slow down more. Anyway, so there's two technologies I'm going to highlight today. Uh, but let's start with silicon carbide, the future of electronics. Historically, electronics are made from silicon, and much of the early development of this took place in California, hence Silicon Valley. It is important to note that silicon is classified as a semiconductor on the periodic table. This means that its band gap requires an amount of energy somewhere between the very large amounts of insulators and the very low amounts of conductors in order to be conductive. What is the band gap, you may ask? The band gap is the energy required for an electron to move from an atom's outermost valence shell or band to the conduction band. The conduction band is where the excited electron moves to, which can be either within the valence shell for atoms of low electronegativity, like sodium, or an additional shell. In the case of an atom with a large electronegativity, like chlorine, How does this generate electric current, you may ask? Suppose we have an intrinsic silicon crystal. That's silicon without any impurities. At a certain temperature, which can be assumed to be room temperature uh, for silicon in this case, some of the valence electrons move into the conduction band to become free electrons and the places left in the valence band are called holes. When a voltage is applied over the silicon, the free electrons are attracted to the positive voltage terminal and move towards it. This is called electron current. But wait, there's more. Now that some electrons are in the conduction band, other electrons that remain in the valence band can now move into those holes, 
creating a current, unsurprisingly called the whole current. In silicon carbide, the band gap is three times greater than that of just silicon and requires that much more energy for the electrons to advance. This in turn allows silicon carbide to withstand electric fields that are 10 times greater than silicon, allowing a chip of the same size to receive 10 times the voltage or a chip of dimensions 10 times smaller to receive the same voltage. A smaller chip size allows higher frequency operation and less resistance, so less waste heat. The smaller chip size also plays into Moore's law by creating a smaller surface on which to attach transistors. As you can imagine, silicon carbide can revolutionize our smart economy in so many ways, from manufacturing to hybrid cars, to heating elements for forming glass and heat treatment of metals, to jewelry, where it is called moissanite, because that's its mineral name. Moissanite rarely occurs naturally and is often produced artificially with a manufacturing process called the Lely, L-E-L-Y method, which is slightly more tangentially related to this episode but may make a good topic for a future episode. Next up in tonight's tour of state-of-the-art materials is a special type of plastic that degrades under UV light, aka the sun. As you can imagine, a plastic with this characteristic has immense applications to protect the environment while maintaining our dependence on plastic materials, something that was not thought to be possible before the NSF-funded research from Cornell University was published earlier this year. The material is called isotactic polypropylene oxide, or IPPO, which has been known since 1949, just without its photodegradation feature. As you may know, I'd like to give you an appreciation for just how long scientific research takes. And this study is no different. The research on IPPO was started 15 years ago and continues into the future. Anyway, like many polymers, IPPO is very ductile, stretching considerably in a tensile test that I saw in a YouTube video that I'll share from the pod's Twitter account, at podtetrahedra. This was cool because it looked very similar to a tensile test that my group and I performed on high-density polyethylene, or HDPE, in a lab during my undergraduate career. To give you a sense of just how similar all these polymers are, HDPE is commonly used in hard plastic applications like garbage cans or chemical storage bottles. Its low-density analog, LDPE, is used in plastic bags and takeout food containers. And the historic precursor to IPPO, which is isotactic polypropylene, 
is used in objects like fishing nets. When exposed to UV light, the new IPTO degraded to 25% of its initial length in less than 30 days. While this sounds very promising, it should not breed complacency in our ambitions to reduce plastic consumption. There are still many years until IPPO is commercially viable, and plastic waste is an imminent threat to our way of life. The bottom line is that we should continue banning single-use plastic bags, and probably do likewise for plastic utensils and other such consumer goods. But IPPO is a nice safety net that may come along someday and may help us become truly 100% sustainable. Okay, so uh, I'm going to be going a little off script for the final segment tonight. Um, but as you know, uh, I like sharing some rather quirky uh, science topics on the podcast. So um, tonight I've got a few uh, pretty cool things that I want to uh, read. So um, the first two are from the BBC Science Focus magazine. Um, they, they publish their reader questions online. And uh, so here's the first one that I'd like to read tonight. Is it bad to wear socks in bed? I don't know, is that a problem that you've had? Is that a problem going around? I don't know, I've never heard of it, but uh, here we go. Is it bad to wear socks in bed? No, in fact, it may give you a better night's sleep. A 2007 study at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience found that people who wore socks in bed fell asleep faster than those without. The reason is that warming your feet tricks your body into thinking it's too hot, so it increases blood flow to your skin. This causes your core temperature to drop slightly, and a reduced core temperature is one of the signals that tell your brain to prepare for sleep. It's a good idea to wear a different pair from your daytime socks, though, just to keep things fresh. So there you go. There's uh, that article. Sorry if uh, it was a little bit of an abrupt ending. Um, the, the, the scroll bar on the side is much smaller. Um, and none of these articles are that long. Um, but it's still hard to tell exactly where, where the answer is going to end. So anyway, um, here's the next interesting everyday science article I'd like to read. Could we bring back an extinct species using DNA, Jurassic Park style? Good question. Good question. To de-extinct an animal, you need a source of the animal's DNA, which provides the blueprint for making it. DNA uh, is sometimes preserved in fossils, and the oldest DNA extracted to date comes from a 700,000-year-old horsebone found in the Canadian permafrost. However, DNA breaks down over time, 
and the scientists think that it's unlikely to be found in any specimen older than a million years. Dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. No dinosaur DNA. No dinosaurs. Sorry. Some other species, however, are fair game. In 2003, scientists briefly de-extincted a type of goat called the Bucardo. DNA-laden cells taken from the last living female before she died were used to create a clone, and the resulting embryo was transplanted into the womb of a living domestic goat. The Bucardo was delivered by cesarean section, but died shortly after birth due to lung defects. The Bucardo was therefore the first animal to be de-extincted, but also the first animal to go extinct twice. Other de-extinction projects include attempts to revive an Australian amphibian called the gastric brooding frog, a North American bird called the passenger pigeon, and the one and only woolly mammoth. These use a combination of cloning, gene editing, and stem cell methods. But don't hold your breath, waiting for the pitter-patter of tiny feet. De-extinction is still very much in its infancy, so for now, take solace in the fact that dinosaurs never really left us. Birds are their direct descendants, and they're everywhere. So the last thing that I would like to uh, share tonight um, is uh, an interesting seminar uh, if, uh, if you would like to attend. It takes place tomorrow, Tuesday, August 4th, 2020, at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it's sponsored by the uh, NASA Advanced Supercomputing Division. And the speakers are from ANSYS. So the seminar is called Fighting the Spread of Pathogens in Passenger Aircraft Cabins, an Approach Using Computer Simulations. And here's the abstract. This talk will explore how high-fidelity physics-based computer simulations can be used to help the abatement of the virus transmission in a cabin's air. It will show how CFD simulations of the flow patterns inside a passenger cabin can be used to suggest new best practices for safe air travel. This seminar will show how optical simulation and CFD tools can be used to improve the sterilization of the cabin via UV rays and electrostatic sprays. So that's the, um, I believe, the abstract of the abstract. Um, <clears throat> here's the actual abstract of the uh, talk. And I will share this link um, on the pod's Twitter account, at pod tetrahedra. Our modern way of life is deeply dependent on air travel and public transportation. COVID-19 has profoundly affected international and do domestic travel for business and pleasure, leaving many wondering how we can still travel by air 
while protecting ourselves from the virus? This is an especially difficult question for an airborne virus like SARS-CoV-2, which causes the COVID-19 disease. In this talk, we will explore how high-fidelity physics-based computer simulations can be used to help with the abatement of the virus transmission in a cabin air. And then it goes on to explain what I just read. So there's a little precursor to the um, what I previously read. I will share this link on the pod's Twitter account at podtechthehedor. I'm going to do it right now. But first, thank you very much for listening to this episode. And as always, stay curious, tinker, experiment, and explore the world. listening to another episode of Tetrahedra. Let me know what you think about this episode and or the pod so far by providing a message at anchor.fm slash tetrahedra. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash tetrahedra. Or on Twitter at at pod tetrahedra. Also, be sure to follow the pod on GitHub at atpodtetrahedra. I've got some very exciting stuff planned, so be sure to stay tuned. As always, stay curious, tinker, experiment, and explore the world. <laughs>